We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Nathaniel Garrett Novosel, who has studied psychology, behavioral economics, philosophy, and business for over 20 years, and used this knowledge to write a book called The Meaning of Life. When I discovered this book, I thought, what incredible courage to actually say I have managed to put into a book the meaning of life. So I just had to have you on my podcast, Nathaniel. What started you asking this important question, what makes life meaningful? Yeah, you know, it's been a long journey of uh, many decades. So when I was five years old, my father disappeared in the middle of the night. And I don't really remember much back then because, you know, that's when you form your first memories. But I do remember when I was six <laughs> because he reached out and said he wanted to see us, my uh, my, my brother and I. And so we went out there uh, to, to California. I was uh, from Pennsylvania originally. And when I came home, the first night back, you know, I tried, I tried sleeping uh, in my mother's bed because I was so, I felt so empty inside, but nothing could help. I just sat there and felt miserable and like life was pointless and this was terrible because I, I, I just felt like someone ripped my heart out. <laughs> After that experience, I was sitting there in bed. I'm six years old. I'm looking up at the ceiling and I'm like, what is the point of all this if, if we're going to be miserable like this? And that's when I finally asked, like, what is the meaning of life? Now, what's interesting about it, I always joke, I have this robot brain. There's a part of my brain that's very analytical and, and cold and insensitive to, to everything and just thinks, you know, like a Vulcan kind of thing, where I said, well, that's a fascinating question. I bet you can answer that. <laughs> so I spent decades studying all the sciences that would help you understand how things work. So that's psychology, evolutionary biology, economics, you know, all of these fields that get to how does the world work and, and why. You know, fast forward just under 30 years, I asked myself, I was actually leaving a, a job and going to another one. And I was like, well, what would I say to someone to inspire them to, you know, do what they want in life? And I was like, well, you know, I've studied this stuff for decades. How would I explain how life works to someone in a way that would help them be able to do it, live successfully and live in the life that they want? And as soon as I asked myself that question, these core concepts that everyone needs to understand and master came into my head. And as soon as that happened, I knew I needed to write the book. We'll go into those core concepts in a little while, but there's a couple of things you're saying there that I would really like to find out a bit more about. What was it about going to California that was so unsettling for you? Because I really want to understand where this question came from, because for it to come to a six-year-old is truly profound. Yeah, it's a hard one to describe, but basically, I'm sure you you know as uh, in your profession with regards to people who have abandonment issues, right? So there are different uh, flavors of that, like people who are adopted, go, you know, why did my biological parents uh, abandon me, things like that, right? Well, for me, like I said, I don't remember what it was like when, when he originally left and disappeared. I guess I just assume that's kind of how things were. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but I do remember when I went there, I cried because I was leaving my mother for the first time. I'd never been away from her. But that went away because I knew it was coming back. And three weeks and two days was the exact amount of time. It was when I came back 
that it felt like I had my father ripped for me or, or, or whatever, in the sense that I was possibly never going to see him again. Ah, right. So it sort of effectively reawoken the original trauma of him disappearing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's just the sense of, of, of worthlessness and, and loss and, and that, you know, I wasn't worth anything because I, you know, I was never going to see him again, that kind of thing. And you didn't see him again after the age of six or you were able to have a relationship with him? So I went out every year for the summer for longer and longer periods, but every time I would come home, I would feel the same emptiness. It, it got it got easier over time. But yeah, it was pretty bad for a while where I just knew when I came home the first night back to, to Pittsburgh, that I was going to feel like crap for uh, an evening before I got over it. And how out of interest at six did you start to try and answer this question? You know, I just gravitate toward understanding how things work and how people work. Now, you know, there's a there's an under, another interesting wrinkle to this. I, I jokingly call it my robot brain. I didn't realize this until recently, like pretty recently. I am a highly functional person with Asperger's. I, I, as soon as I found out what introversion was, I knew I was an introvert. And then as soon as I found out what Asperger's was, I was like, ooh, that, that sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people like they they criticize you for self-diagnosing. So I was like, well, what does it matter if I have it or not? Because there's nothing I can do about it. So I never went and, and checked it out. But I finally did after I got some 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 uh, harsh feedback in a in a in a performance review actually, and that talked about my inability to make eye contact and have an executive presence and all this other stuff. And I was like, well, you know, I I've been like that my whole life because that's kind of me. And I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fix that. So I went and actually did get. They're like, yeah, you've got away for, with it for so long that it, you don't really have to change your behavior or anything it's who you are. But yeah, you, you're, you, you definitely exhibit some of those signs. Yeah. And how did that feel getting the diagnosis? I mean, it, it actually felt better after decades because people with Asperger's, you feel like an alien, right? You, you don't understand normal social human interactions. You, you study them as if you were from another planet. And that's, kidding, getting back to your original question, uh, that's why I was so fascinated. If I'm six years old, I don't. I, people act in ways that I don't understand. I study it. So I'm sitting there, I'm reading books on psychology. I'll never forget the first book I actually read cover to cover where I was just engaged the whole time and couldn't put it down. And it was completely self-driven was a book on statistics and, and data. <laughs> I was just like, oh, you know, it was this, the only one I remember right now off the top of my head is that they actually had someone hiding in a bathroom stall and they were listening to see how many people went and, and used, say, the urinals and then uh, washed their hands afterwards. And, uh, and it was like 30% of people did that when they didn't think anyone was there. But when someone did, it was like 80%. And I was like, oh my God, that's fascinating. And it's amazing how people work. And so that kind of line of thinking, uh, psychology and so forth, that fascinated me uh, my entire life. And how old were you when you actually discovered this book on hand washing in urinals? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. I was, uh, I, I'm guessing, but like uh, late single digits, early double digits in my life. But yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I, I, I loved. I loved psychology. Um, I loved learning about evolution. I learned, uh, loved learning about anything that had to do with with how things worked. And I was, I'm really good with computers, just trying to understand how they work. I build my own for, for video games and stuff. So I, I definitely love to dissect things and, and understand how they work, which is why whenever I said, oh, I think I figured out how life works, it was like a, an epiphany. Excellent. And sometimes people describe Asperger's as having like a super power that there are other things that compensate for it. And this ability to see a lot of data and then find the patterns in it is something that I've come across with some of my clients as well. And it is truly extraordinary. You sort of think, wow, how did they actually do that? Because 
that was the sort of feeling that I had when I saw some of the ideas in this book. How did you get all of this data down into this idea? Can you explain it? Yeah. So I'm naturally a deep thinker by nature. So when someone asks me a question, I advise people for a living. And and when someone asks me a question, like just words just flow into my head. And then I have to like, when I say them, it's very complex and and complicated sentences and so forth. And my writing is very complicated as well. And I was like, okay, I know that's not going to fly. So I I gave myself some rules, like silly rules. Like I I couldn't write a sentence that was over four lines long. So if it was over four lines, I cut it down, you know, that kind of thing. Good rule. Yeah. (laughs) But my favorite one was that I had to explain every concept in one word. and, And that word had to be the title of the chapter. Because I couldn't be like, well, technically, the meaning of life to do blah, blah, blah. And so I said, okay, name it in one word, because that's what people are going to want. And so as I kept going through and going through and going through it, I kept repeating, like, well, what word would represent the essence of this? And, and that's how I got it down to eight concepts that can all be defined in one word. But yes, they are very, very complicated when I explain how they work in reality and how you can use them to, to find meaning in your life. Do you see pictures or with this data or just just the useful bits all just somehow pop together? Just give me some kind of insight into how your brain works. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not like a savant or anything. I wish I wish I were. I don't see in in colors or I can't recite piano pieces on, on first sight. But what I do have is this I always joke it that my brain's on fire, like like it lights up when insight is happening. <laughs> and it's funny because I actually work, uh, I, I do research and advisory for, for leaders and we talk all the time about ideas. And I basically, I don't need to like think really hard about like what I'm looking at to, to know when it's good. When someone's saying something or so showing something, I, I already know. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Like, and 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 I just get super excited about it. So that that's pretty much what I'm seeking all the time is is what's the next insight, what's the next cool way of of looking at the world or looking at a problem to find out how to solve it or how to, how it works. And that's what I'm I'm drawn to. Getting the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's funny. It's good and bad. So the bad side is my, my I jokingly call my brain screaming at me when I get anxious, you know, social situations, or if I do something wrong or things. It's like you, you know, it's a you know well known that like people with autism do things to soothe, self soothe, like they slap themselves in the face or something. Like I, I kind of have that urge all the time when I'm anxious, but. It has a good side, which is when I'm, I'm learning something or something insightful, my, my brain lights up and I'm just like, whoa, this is amazing. Oh, man. And then I keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it and, and trying to process it, process it, process it, because I want to be able to to master it. And how are you feeling at the moment? Is your brain on fire or are you feeling relaxed? How are you doing? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, I always want to make sure I do the best that I can. So there's always a level of anxiety there. But if you you know, start dropping insight bombs, as we call it, uh, in, <laughs> in our field, then, yeah, my brain will start lighting up with, wow, okay, this is interesting. Let me and incorporate this to what I already know. And I'm gonna, things are going to be, uh, be happening up there. <laughs> I think what's interesting is that sometimes I have a similar kind of feeling, but actually that's much more in my guts than my head. And, you know, when I read your first sentence, I thought, wow, or the first idea of the first of the eight fundamental concepts, which is sort of something that I'd been thinking, but I hadn't managed to sort of put it down quite as succinctly as you did. That's when I had a sort of a feeling in my gut. And it's interesting that possibly when you put that sentence together, and we'll tell people in a moment what it is, that you had a sort of a fire in your brain. That's 
fascinating that both of us, very different people, have had the same reaction to that sentence. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? How I actually... How do I put this? Well, should I should I go over the eight real fast, just so people have context? Or yes, I think that's what we're going to do. We'll just focus on the first one, and then we'll look at the rest of them because I think the first one is the key to all the rest of them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so just just to kind of spoil it for everybody, <laughs> the meaning of life is growth. That's the point of everything. Let's just stop for a second and yeah, just yeah. say that again because yeah. that is really profound. The meaning of life is to grow. Period. Full stop. <laughs> Why is the meaning of life to grow? Well, it's the one unifying principle for every philosophy that's ever existed. Science supports it. It all comes down to that. So, I mean, if you want to go to the scientific route, how did life begin? Well, we were not exactly 100% sure. You can go with the primordial soup angle or the ocean, and there are a bunch of other you know theories about that. You can go with God. Regardless of, of the cause or source of life, the definition of life, how we know life is even a thing, is that it self-replicates. And that is, by definition, the most fundamental form of growth. And so everything that's spun off from that, from amoebae to to humans, they all have that unifying principle of life, which is growth. And let's look at it through philosophy then, rather than through science. Sure. So through philosophy, you take any philosophy you want. Let's start with the metaphysical ones. Like, I mean, a lot of people love the law of attraction, right? If you think about the law of attraction, what do they say are the key elements to getting whatever you want in life? Desire and belief. Uh, spoiler alert, those are two and three in my, in my book, is desire and belief. So if you have desire and you have belief, you will act and strive after what you want. And what do you need to do to get what you want? You need to grow into the person who gets what he or she wants. So it all fits together. Uh, in fact, you, even uh, one of the more famous ones, Abraham Hicks, uh, will say, freedom, growth, and joy are, the, are the, the point of life. And guess what? Growth is number one. Joy is an emotion, which is number five. And freedom is, is a freedom of choice, which is number eight. So... It, it fits perfectly with uh, the concept that I identified. So I'm just going to go through them again. Number one is growth. The meaning of life is growth. Number two is experience. You grow through experience. I'd like to look, talk a bit more about that as well. Number three, desire motivates you to have experiences. Number four, belief. It shapes your perception and sustains your desires. Number five is emotions, which indicate life directions and progress. Six is ethics, principles for your growth within society. Seven, support, enables you to realize your life's meaning. And choice is number eight. Your choice creates your destiny. And those are your chapter headings. So I'm not summarizing at all. Yeah, those are literally it. <laughs> Let's stay with growth for a little bit longer, because yeah. what you say is that a lot of us either have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. Now, can you explain that? Sure. Yeah, that's a concept by Dr. Carol Dweck. Uh, she wrote a book called Mindset. I actually hadn't read it until I had already had my concepts laid out. But whenever I read her book, I was like, oh my God, she proved it scientifically. This is insane. What she did is she found in her research that there were two ways of thinking about yourself. There's the growth mindset, which is the belief that you can continue to grow and improve over time and you can always get better. And there's the fixed mindset, which is that you think that intelligence or ability or whatever is innate. And what happens in that mindset is as soon as you 
face any setbacks or obstacles, you go, well, I've reached my potential. I'm done. That's all I can do. And you stop and you give up. And the people who grow, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, the people who have the growth mindset are more likely to continue through adversity and they're more likely to succeed, period, full stop. So that's scientifically proven through psychology from Carol Dweck's work and and, and I'm sure others as well. But she's the one who really popularized it. Now, what I found in, in my work, I actually stumbled upon it later and went, oh my God, this proves it. But before I'd already known, it's like, well, you can prove it through uh, evolutionary biology that, you know, we're growing, we're constantly trying to push forward and, and be more and so on and so forth. You can look at all the different forms of, of animals who are all trying to survive. And you can even go with the logical route from uh, the um, Darwinian theory, right? Which is that survival of the fittest. Okay, you, you're alive to survive, but why do you survive? You survive to thrive, which is to grow. So yeah, it's whoever is fit enough to survive lives, but why do they live? They live to to grow and 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 uh, and develop. It's, it's quite interesting. I, I'm obviously interested in psychology. I read a lot of books by, at the moment, I read a lot about Jungian philosophy and therapy. One of the authors who actually I often talk about on this program is James Hollis. I'll put the details of this particular book, Living an Examined Life, in the show notes. Can you give us again the name of the book with the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset? Dr. Carol Dweck Mindset. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But what um, James Hollis says is that when we're faced with a dilemma, we should always go for the path of growth that we should always go with something that's actually going to challenge us and help us grow. So here's another person that's actually talking about growth. What he also says, which is sort of at the pivot of this program, is choose meaning over happiness. Would something that you would be going with as well, choosing meaning over happiness? Yeah, 100%. But it, it's very important to note why and, and what, how that works. In fact, I always joke that most misunderstandings in the world can, can actually be traced back to language issues. And happiness is one of those. So when someone says, hey, the meaning of life is to be happy, it's like, well, what do you mean by that? It's actually one of the biggest travesties in, in history is that uh, people say the meaning of life is to be happy, and then someone misinterprets that and think they mean the meaning of life is to experience pleasure, and then they go, you know, do drugs and on, and have promiscuous sex or, like, pick something that's just hedonistic in its pleasures, and that's not actually going to get you meaning. And the reason why is that that happiness has many different, actually, like, flavors, right? But, well, let's stick with two pleasure, and fulfillment. So if you say the meaning of life is to be happy and you mean pleasure, you're absolutely positively wrong. (laughs) If you say the meaning of life is to be fulfilled, well, then what makes you feel fulfilled? Well, that's growth. Then yeah, okay, I'll give you that. Then that's probably accurate. But the fact that when people just kind of say it's to be happy and then people misinterpret that and then go try to eat food and do whatever they do to to feel pleasure and then they don't feel fulfilled and wonder what they did wrong is because they misunderstood the definition of happiness. So tell us about desire and how it motivates us to have experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's an inner drive in terms of the the basics, right? That's why we have sex drives and, and we want to eat and all this other stuff. But we also have that, that same mechanism, that metaphorical hunger, so to speak, is what drives you to do anything. And what's cool about human nature is that there are so many more ways to grow than just physical, right? And that's what I talk about the, in, in the first chapter on growth, where I talk about, hey, you can grow in many different ways, right? You can grow physically, uh, psychologically, or intellectually, socially, spiritually, et cetera, et cetera. And then the desire chapter, I talk about, well, once you understand that growth is the point, what areas do you grow? 
The answer to that is desire. Desire will tell you. And again, that you can look at any philosophy and and they'll all have some flavor of this, right? Some talk about uh, the risks of desiring bad things like Christianity, for example, or Catholicism to be uh, exact as they talk about these like bad desires. But uh, putting that aside for a second, everyone talks about desires <laughs> and that you want things and that you and, and what you should want, right? And so it's the mechanism that gets you to want or, or, or to go after something. Now, the important thing to note from that chapter is that only you know what you want. Like, I can't tell you what to want. I can't tell you which areas. I could list all the growth areas, but I can't tell you what goal to have. And that was very important to my book. I, I have a rule in, when I wrote the book is I can't tell you what goal to have. I can't tell you what ethics to have or how to live. And the desire chapter is really the epitome of that. It, it explains how desire works and, and how you can use it to find meaning in your life. But it does not tell you what goal to have because that's not for me to tell you. And you're not deciding whether this desire is a good desire or a bad desire, are you, in this chapter? Or are you giving us some help? Because if I desire my neighbor's wife, <laughs> I think that probably is going to end in tears and I don't think it's going to help me grow. It might in the sense that, you know, after I've driven my life against a wall, I might actually do something different. But how do I work out if a desire is one that really should be followed and whether it's one that's possibly worth stepping aside from? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I don't say that here's what you should want or what your goal should be and here's how you should act or what ethics you should have. I do explain when you know it's a good or bad thing for you. I do cover that. In the emotions chapter, I cover this, but there are two things I think worth mentioning here. First is that there are no such thing as wanting a bad thing. I know that sounds kind of a hot take, but let me explain. Any desire for a bad thing is really a desire for a good thing and a belief that you can't have the good thing without the bad thing. So let's stay with my example of fencing my next door neighbor's wife. Exactly. Yeah. So you want the pleasure of being intimate with someone, right? And if you believe that that neighbor's wife is the only way to get that, then you, yeah, you will want that thing, which isn't necessarily ethical. But you're, you're obviously your desire is either positive, I, I define positive, but we'll just say good, that you, you know, you want to experience love and, and so forth. But and connection, those yeah, are all good things. Yeah, those are all good things. But you believe that that, that, that your neighbor's wife is, is the, you must have that. And because you believe you must have that, then you are willing to act on those in a way that might be self detrimental or detrimental to your neighbor. So what you're saying is if something is causing you to think twice, maybe look a bit deeper at what the underlying desire is, which in this case is for connection and love. And then we need to get away from this sort of scarcity idea that the only person that I can find this with is the person next door, because there's actually quite a lot of other people in the world, aren't there? Exactly. And, and, and it's really a combination of the desire and beliefs that get you to act in, in ways that are best for yourself and that don't hurt other people. So that's the thing that people have to keep in mind is just because you want something, you, you can't have a want uh, without having your beliefs influence it. So you have to make sure you understand both to make sure that you have a, a healthy desire. But the other thing I want to mention real fast is that, and I mentioned this emotion chapter, is that your emotions can be quote unquote hacked addictions, drugs, these are all things that prevent, and we can talk about it in a second, but these are all things that can break, basically break your emotional indicator. When people say, well, what about addictions you might want? You might have a desire. That's not desire. That's not a healthy, normal desire. That's an addiction. Those are different things because you've hacked 
impact your emotional indicators. So those are quote unquote bad desires because they're not really healthy desires. So tell us how our desire system is hacked. Well, what happens is let's let's take that same example. Like there are no negative wants, they're just positive wants that with negative beliefs, right? If you want to be happy and 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 feel joy and fulfilled, but then you believe you can't, right? You let's take a let's take a very common one. What's the number one reason people get into drugs when they're teenagers? Boredom. <laughs> and so uh, they're bored, right? And so what is boredom telling you? Boredom is telling you that whatever you're doing in life right now is not stimulating to you. And so you want to to feel something, right? And, and maybe, and I jokingly call it the the spoiled teenager syndrome when you when you want all, all the benefits of of adulthood without any of the responsibility. If you're that in that kind of situation where it's like you kind of just get whatever you want right away, and then you don't really have to want for anything, and then here you are just kind of sitting there listlessly going, eh, you know, life is whatever. And then you go, okay, well, I want to experience something, you know, amazing. And you and you don't really, you know, understand how life works and that you, you can work toward goals and that can make you feel good. You then go, well, I'm a, meant to experience pleasure. So I'm going to go try some drugs. And then you take it and then boom, your your emotional system is hacked. You get high and then you're, you crash and then you go, oh, I, I want that high again. And then you get addicted. So that's how it's hacked. It's it's through the desire for, for you know, some sort of pleasure from the fulfillment, the belief that this is something that you should try because nothing else is working. And then you become dependent on it for the next bit of pleasure in your life. Help us with beliefs, because I think that these are really important. Possibly a big chunk of my work as a therapist is actually helping people articulate what their beliefs are. A lot of them are actually hidden under the surface. So I will give you one from my own personal life that I was brought up with the belief that you'll find I've gone a long way away from. But the belief that I was brought up with was that talking about emotions only makes things worse. Now, my parents never actually said that, but it could just as well have been written above the doorway because everything that happened in our house reinforced that idea. Now, I don't actually believe that, but learning to find in my unconscious or wherever it was stored, this belief allows me to challenge it. So our beliefs are incredibly important because it's sort of the platform for everything else almost in a way. How do you help people find out what their beliefs are? Because they're not all going to be in conscious, are they? Yeah. And it's a really good point. I don't remember exactly how I define beliefs in the book, but it's something along the lines of anything that you assume to be true. <laughs> and so good definition, and there's a subset of belief, which is knowledge. But I, I point out something really, it's profound, but it almost sounds ridiculous where I said, look, the only way to truly know something is to be observing it at the current point in time. And that's it. Everything else you don't actually know, you just believe. So I say like the, the earth spinning around the sun, it's like you quote unquote know that. It's like technically if you're not looking at it, it might have gotten hit by an asteroid. You know, <laughs> you don't know. And so that, that's, that's the thing that's, uh, that people don't realize is that, that knowledge is a very fragile thing. <laughs> so help us for this week actually use that insight again. Give it to me one more time. Yeah, so you can only truly know anything is if, if you're observing it in the current point in time. Uh, so if you want to test your beliefs, there are a couple of options. Uh, one of my favorites is just assume the opposite is true and see what happens, right? Because the, the negative beliefs that people usually have are things like life is meaningless or, or I'm stupid or, you know, pick something that, that you, you hate yourself. 
And, and it's like, really, it's like, you know, you just, you know, you just ran a marathon. Like, what's wrong with you? Now, you know, only 10% of people run marathons. And so, you know, I'm making that up, but just like only a fraction of people actually run marathons. So therefore, you've done what most people can't do. That's an example of, of giving an observation of a fact that disproves your claim, uh, which uh, breaks through your beliefs. So that's one idea. And what's the second one? The other one in terms of being able to, to test your beliefs is that you can always find evidence to the contrary if you're looking for it. So you can always use these mechanisms of priming and self-fulfilling prophecy and all these other things so that you can start to switch your beliefs over. One is to ch- almost ridicule your beliefs. That's what we were talking about a second ago. And then the other one is uh, rather than trying to disprove a negative, you can always look for a positive of, of the opposite, right? So you can always look for evidence of, hey, you're a good person or you try hard or, or whatever. Or the, you know you're not you're not terrible and it'll, it'll start to, to 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 tell you that that um, what you believe or assume to be true actually does not uh, match up with reality so it's I think a really good idea to actually spend a week trying to see how many beliefs you can come up with that you can see evidence in the week and actually then at the end of the week see what you've discovered that you might be surprised by, because the things that you might be surprised by might be things that are challenging old beliefs that are lying around in your unconscious. See what you come up with at the end of the week, because those beliefs are really important. So thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit about ethics. You say these are the principles for your growth within society. Yeah, ethics are a lot simpler than people make them out to be, but they're also a lot more complex than people make them out to be. They're simpler in the fact that what are ethics? They're rules you follow for two purposes. (laughs) Maximize your own growth and don't hurt anybody, right? <laughs> I, I always joke that like, if you were the only organism on the face of the earth, you wouldn't really need ethics as we know them because there would be no one to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, you know they, wouldn't, they wouldn't really exist because everyone follows rules. And I go so far as to say that you could argue that ethics are any rule you follow for, for a living. But that I define ethics in the book as rules to follow in your relationship with other living organisms. Right. And so I don't tell you what ethics to have. I explicitly don't because it's not for me to tell you how to live. But I do talk about some of the evolutionary foundations of ethics and some of the evolutionary uh, universal ethics. Uh, The three universal ethics, uh, which, well, every uh, human can agree on, are fairness, reciprocity, and minimal harm. Minimal harm to those who care about, to be exact. But I think we can throw in the planets too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but those are the three that everyone has. And like, like I said, look, I'm not telling you how to, how, how to manifest those or anything like that. I'm just saying, hey, this is how people work. And even the ones that you think might be universal, like honesty or murder or all these other things, technically have exceptions for when they would violate those three principles when you do them, right? So like honesty is a good example. If they violate the fairness, reciprocity, or minimal harm ethic, then it's actually not right to be honest, right? So like I, yeah, everyone uses the example if the Nazis come knocking at your door and ask you if you have any Jews in your house, the right answer, if you have them, is no, <laughs> because that will prevent harm. So honesty is not a universal truth or ethic that you should hold in the event that it would violate fairness, reciprocity, or, or minimal harm. So here's another one of these razor ideas that I think really cut through. If your purpose is unclear, 
seek growth opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people come to me and they say, I don't know what my purpose in life is. And that's a really good starting point. How did you come up with that? Well, yeah, it's a combination of two things. One is the obvious one that, you know, when uh, people are going through trauma or experiencing um, shock, right? And what do people do when someone's experiencing shock? They give them something to focus on, right? That's not the thing. <laughs> like, you know, someone's someone experienced shock, they're like, hey, you know, do this. And they they give them a purpose, right? It gives them a purpose because then they don't feel the way that they feel, or at least they're not focused on it, right? So it's a combination of that, which is, if you don't know, you know, here's something to focus on. Uh, but again, since I can't tell you, hey, you know, do this, right? You know, eat your vegetables or whatever every day is something I'm not trying to tell you how to live. But it's a combination of that with, if we know what the meaning of life is, that it's, that it's growth, then if I tell you, hey, focus on this, and that the thing I tell you to focus on is growth opportunities, boom, together, it's like focus on those things and you will start to find uh, meaning. You know, it sounds profound, but at the same time, it, it sounds obvious when you think about it. Go to, go look, read any biographies or books on success or what we give awards for. And, and you look at it every time. Everyone says, oh, the meaning of life is, is serving others. The meaning of life is to continue learning. The meaning of life is, you know, it, all the list of things that people list out all have something to do with growth, either enabling others' growth or, or growing yourself into the person you want to be. And so it's like, it's not a surprise then that if you do that, you will find your life to be more meaningful. And here's one final one that I'm going to take away is don't focus on the goal. Steps are just as important. Why do you say that? Well, because when people say, what is the meaning of life? They usually are thinking of what the ultimate goal is. And that's just a faulty premise in and of itself. By the way, uh, for folks uh, wondering, like, how do I define meaning with meaning in life? There are many meanings, right, of meaning, <laughs> um, not to be meta there, but the three that growth satisfy it's the definition. We already talked about that as part of the, what defines life as a, the fundamental characteristics. It's the purpose. As it's, it's what every organism intends to do, you know, reproduce, self-replicate, and so forth. And the third is it's what gives it significance. We just said that with why do you give someone an award? You give someone a lifetime achievement award. Well, you give it for the achievement, but you don't really give it for the achievement. You give it for because they grew into the person that could accomplish the thing. And that's really why you're giving it. I, I always say you don't give an award to the achievement, you give it to the person. <laughs> and so the person had to grow to become that person to achieve it. So you're rewarding the growth, not the achievement. And so when people ask, well, the meaning of life, they, they really ask what the point of life is, uh, like as in the final goal, like there's some sort of final goal. And that's the secret because the point of life is growth. There is no end goal to shoot for. And I said, I always give, again, uh, use a, a, an example to disprove the uh, hypothesis, right? So let's say if everyone's ever played the video game Civilization, you know, the end of a lot of those games is that you build a spaceship that can, you know, house hundreds of thousands of people and you shoot it off to Alpha Centauri. And once it lands on Alpha Centauri, you win the game civilization. And so I said, okay, let's say that's your, your, your success criteria for life is that we're just evolving until we build a rocket ship and go to Alpha Centauri and then you win. Well, guess what? At the end of the video game civilization, the, the, the you win a game over screen shows up and it gives you a score based on how well or quickly you did that. That doesn't happen in life. If you were to actually fly to you know wherever and land there and go, okay, I've done that. Yay, we're done. And it's like, nope, we're still here. Got to find something else to do. And so growth is the point because no matter what you achieve in life, 
there will always be something else. You know, Peyton Manning didn't, you know, set all these quarterback records. And then once he retires, go, well, I've achieved my goal in life. I'm just going to blow my brains out. It's like, no, you don't do that. <laughs> he's going to go and be a pitch man and do comedy and do, you know, a businessman. And, and he's going to find other ways to grow. And you will always, there's always something else. So don't focus on the goal because those goals will change. But growth will always be the mechanism through which you strive to achieve those goals. Well, I hope that you're finding this program useful. In a moment, I'm going to explain how you can take part in a deeper way in the program by joining our supporters club. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the great advantages of joining our supporters club is that you can not only get bonus material and find out um, what are the three things that Nathaniel knows to be true and hear us discuss what each of us have learned from this program. You can also write letters into us, and this is the letter that we're going to discuss today. For many years, I put off answering the big questions in life to some unknown moment in the future, when I'd be less busy or somehow wiser. I guess that in my 20s and 30s, I thought I had plenty of time, but deep down, I knew working out the meaning or purpose of life would not be easy. However, as I came up to 50, I began to think, if not now, then when? So thanks for starting this podcast. It's good to know I'm not alone on this journey. It seems to me that one of the big questions that I need to answer is where do my values come from to guide me through life? Are they from my parents, my education, the culture I was brought up on, myself, or do they come from a higher power? What are your thoughts? Well, I think you're the right person to put this one to. What do you think, Nathaniel? As usual, when I when I read that in preparation for this, then my brain started lighting up because there are actually two insights in that letter and not one. The first one is that there's an assumption about what the meaning of life is, right? A lot of people think it's some grand purpose or some like final big outcome. And we already talked about that, that that's not the case. The The point is that the writer of that letter had a purpose just didn't think about it, right? And everyone has kind of default purposes, right? To, to you know, to grow into an adult, to contribute to society through some sort of meaningful work, uh, to, to reproduce, to raise kids. Those are all default that to get married. There are all these default meanings that are kind of, I don't want to say assigned to you because they're not, but, but you kind of just assume by default. And those are all purposes of your life, right? So you always had them. You just never articulated them or thought about them in that way. So name the default purposes that actually might help you a little bit to understand what your real meaning might be. Is that what you're saying? That, well, I'm saying that everyone has a purpose, they just haven't articulated yet. And so if you feel like you don't have purpose in life, test that by saying, well, actually, I've been acting in ways to achieve certain goals. So what were those goals, uh, you know, graduate from school or whatever, and you will find that you did have purposes, you just didn't maybe find them to be as important to you as you thought you did, you were just kind of doing what everyone else told you to do. And you said there was a second insight. From so the second, in, uh, second insight there was about the values, right? And I have a long description about this is that that's where ethics come from 
right? I, I'm trying to remember my definition of value, but it's basically anything you like uh, or anything you place value or importance or significance on. That's what a value is, right? And then you have an ethic that we already talked about that is to, um, to, to do the best for yourself and grow the best uh, to your ability and to not hurt anyone in the process. And so what you value is what you put ethics around, right? Like if you collect coins and you value that coin collection, then you set rules not to, you know, touch it with, you know, your bare hands to get oil on the coins, right? Notice how the ethics all come from values. If you didn't care about those coins, you wouldn't have rules not to touch them. You say, oh, let's throw them in the trash because I don't care. So it all comes down to you have rules to protect what you care about and to make sure that they're not harmed and to uh, foster or develop things that you do care about. That's where your ethics come from. They come from the values. Now, where do the values come from? Well, <laughs> some of them are innate, like everyone cares about their own lives. So that's why people uh, protect and value their own lives. That's why everyone, quote unquote, everyone has value, right? That, that's what they mean. They don't mean like any kind of financial value. They just mean everyone has some sort of significance or importance. So they don't deserve to have their life harmed or, or taken from them. But in terms of what you like or dislike, I, uh, man, that just comes from from biology, right? I mean, if you like to surf or whatever, it's like, well, you, you surf and you say, hey, I like this, and then you value it. So that's kind of how values are formed uh, from there. But you're right, uh, you can have them imposed upon you in ways like, let's say, marriage, for example, let's take that. I mean, marriage, if the world exploded, you knew nothing about it, you might eventually come to the realization that, hey, you know, social coupling is a cool thing. But it's not necessarily biological in the sense that you, you know, marriage isn't a biological thing. It's a, a social thing. So your values do come from society. Hey, you should like, you know, if you're in the U.S., you should love freedom, right? <laughs> if you're a uh, Christian, then you should value God and you should value, uh, you know, your spirit and you should value things like marriage and, and those institutions. So, yeah, a lot of that stuff is imposed through societal uh, norms and, and, and what you're taught and what you're brought up in. But you will find that your personal preferences will win out most of the time, again, unless your beliefs tell you otherwise, because you want to be true to yourself and live true to yourself. And so if you don't like something, you're you're going to stop pretending at some point because you'll get tired of it. Do you think it's necessary to work out if there's a higher power or not to have a meaningful life? I mean, I assumed that I couldn't answer that question in the book. And so, so the direct answer is no, you don't have to know the answer to that. I say pretty early on in the book that, that people conflate things a lot, right? And one of the things that people conflate is the origin of life and the meaning of life, right? And I said, look, you know, we'll never know what caused life, scientifically anyway, because science is the study of the physical universe. And so if you start talking about non-physical entities, by definition, you can't prove it scientifically, and you never will be able to. So, you know, at that point, was it caused by this? Was it caused by that? My argument in the book is like, can we just please set that aside and be indifferent to it so that we can have a conversation about what we know scientifically drives meaning. And then if you want to believe whether it was created by higher power or not, it's up to you. Please do. And I respect either thought. And the reason why I do that is because the, the answer to your question is no. I mean, if you do these eight things, if you if you grow and you, and you focus on your desire and, and you have beliefs that are conducive to your growth, and so forth, you will find your life to be meaningful regardless of, of how you believe it was created. So how have you used this for your own life? Yeah, I saw that question. Because <laughs> this is the big question, what makes your life meaningful? Yeah. So other than those eight things, uh, what makes my life meaningful individually? What sort of growth have you been doing lately then? 
Well, for the first you know, 20 odd years of my life, I, I'd argue my purpose in life, other than the default things like grow and, and you know get a job and that sort of stuff, was to figure out how things worked and what the meaning of life was. And then once I finally came w- up with those eight things, then my meaning of life was to get it down on paper because I was like, I was spending every waking moment that wasn't making money for my job, thinking about how to make this book actually be as, as good as it could be. Um, and then once it's published, now it's, it's a, I'm, I'm going into a little bit of an existential, uh, I don't want to say crisis, but situation where it's like, okay, you know, I am I have to get through the setbacks because marketing and all this other stuff, you know, there are a lot of, someone says, oh, this book is stupid or whatever. It's like, oh man, that's terrible. Maybe I shouldn't have written it at all. It's like, <laughs> dude, you spent seven years on it. I think, I think you, you know what you're talking about. But yeah, so there, there's a lot of that of trying to say, okay, is my path to help other people find their meaning? Yes. Is it a hard one? Uh, yes. <laughs> and so you have to kind of keep yourself encouraged uh, on that, on that path to help others. It's a bit like you've landed on the planet and they've flashed game over, isn't it? <laughs> it? Yeah, it is very much like that, where it's like, hey, I've got some some cool things. And I, I have found something about, about humanity that's very interesting since in this process is that, um, you know, there's that quote, I think it's by Steve Martin, I could be wrong, um, about the one like the first they laugh at you, then they, you know, ridicule you, yada, 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 then they, then they think you're amazing, right? And that, that is so true. Like, you know, there's an old joke, a, a Christian joke that if, if Jesus were to show up today, that they, that, that Jesus would be at a mental, mental institution because no one would believe that he, he was Jesus. And, that's uh, not too far from the truth, right? So if you have a new idea, I mean, everyone from Galileo, people think that the Galileo days are over, right? Like, you know, he was you know, persecuted for believing that you know the earth revolved around the sun. Oh my God, heresy. Uh, but that actually exists today and not even from 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 people with any kind of religious belief that, but the scientific community, if you have a new, new thing, the first thing to do is go, oh, that's stupid, right? The very first thing everybody does is just, if it does not conform to my beliefs, it is stupid. And it's only through repetition and uh, starting to make logical sense and starting to see how the reality actually does support that new assertion or insight do people start to change. And so that's why a few people are successful because they have to get through a gauntlet of people telling them that they're wrong, they're stupid, they can't do it for it to become what everyone just assumes to be true. So what gives your life meaning at this moment, trying to get to the point that people stop thinking that your ideas are stupid? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Let's go with that. No, I, um, yeah, my, my, I guess my meaning now is to help other people understand how the world works and, and to find more meaning in their lives. If I could do that, then that would be an ultimate goal for me that I'd feel like my life was, was successful. Like I said, your goals are constantly changing. So if it doesn't like become the next you know, 50 shades of gray where it comes out of nowhere, and then everyone knows about it, you know, I'll have to, you know, find other avenues through which I I achieve that goal. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on the meaning of life. And this is where we're going to say thank you very much to Nathaniel. But if you're a member of our supporters club, we're not going to end here because we're going to talk about the three things he knows to be true and what we've both going to take away from this programme. So I think that might be worth finding out about. I do hope you'll join us in our supporters club. And Nathaniel, for now, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. 
Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.